0: Welcome to Falling in Love with God's Word with Jill Grossman. Hi, I'm Jill. I'm glad you're taking the time to grow in your understanding of God's Holy Word. I invite you to visit JillGrossman.com. There you'll find additional resources to help you fall in love with God's Word even more, such as books, speaking topics, and workshops. Now, let's get started with today's lesson. Okay. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this chance to do a lecture. And I I humbly ask, Lord, that anything that is me, move it aside, just let it fall away. And everything that's you, that you want us to learn from, I ask that it stay and take root and grow. So I ask for your blessed hand on this time. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, do you dream? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I dream, sometimes I don't, sometimes I do. I've got I've really started dreaming more and more since January of last year. I've had quite a few dreams and visions, things that I'm really paying attention to. Because God still speaks through our dreams and visions today. But sometimes we write it off. Yes. We get so busy we write it off as the bad meatballs we had last night or the you know, whatever is on. can you imagine? But I think it's important that we write down our dreams. If we remember something, I don't care how bizarre it is, write it down. Because their dreams can be warning dreams, or they can be encouraging dreams. But there are dream dictionaries available to us, and I would recommend a few because you don't want to trust just one. You want to, you know, again, interpretive. Write them down, and then the Holy Spirit will show you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a few, uh, last year sometime, wasn't it, Steve? You, Steve had a, a really vivid, vivid, vivid uh, Vision, dream, and um, it took him three days to write it out and then look it up and see what it meant. And the Lord was able to speak to him. And then fast forward, we we're at this church, and most men at that church had had almost the same dream. Wow. So God is moving, but we have to be proactive about finding out what is He saying. And um, just because I like to always point to Scripture, let's talk about Scripture for a second. In Genesis twenty. There was a dream when Abraham was lying about Sarah being his, not his wife, but his sister, King uh, Gerar, Gerar uh, he, God came to him because he was going to take Sarah as his wife, you know. And, and Abraham got himself too deep into a lie. And, he, mm-hmm. um, and that night God came to him and told him that he's, he's as good as dead because mm-hmm. if he was to marry Sarah. So he, this pagan king, immediately returns her back to Abraham and chastises him. It's amazing. Chastises Abraham for his disobedience to God. A pagan, a pagan it's king. Amazing. I just love that. He turns it completely on him. And if you uh, are not familiar with that, it's in Genesis twenty. It's a good, good, uh, a good read. And then you have Genesis forty-one, the famous one. Joseph. Joseph has a dream when he's a teenager and he's boasting about it, about all his brothers bowing to him and all this, you know, and then he ends up that ends up changing the trajectory of his life, or maybe it didn't because God always had a plan, right? And he ends up getting sold into slavery and then he gets falsely accused of some sexual abuse and you know, the Me Too movement was big back then I guess, and um, and then he gets thrown in jail but then he's interpreting dreams in jail and then you know the baker eventually gets out of jail but it takes another 2 years before he remembers Joseph and then we and then Joseph is you know completely the second the highest most uh, second most important man in all of Egypt and ends up reconciling with his family saving Egypt and so the vision was true but that took many 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 years to come to fruition and um, you know i just i just want to stop for a moment and if we only look at the middle of Joseph's life and we don't know the beginning dream and we don't know how it ends we would think what is wrong with this guy look at this guy my gosh his life is a mess God is nowhere near him God is not protecting him no no there's always a reason there's always a backstory. so if you're feeling like you're going through a lot of st- struggles and you feel like God's not with you there's, there's a reason. There's a course. There's something going on, so we just need to trust. Just like Daniel wasn't sure. We were talking about that. He wasn't sure if he was going to get killed, you know, from this king, but he trusts. So dreams sometimes can bring hope. Without dreams, men perish, Scripture says. And then and sometimes dreams can bring warning warnings, so pay attention. So let's go with a little background here, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar II was his official name, and he lived... And reigned from, or lived from 634 to 562 BC. He was the greatest king of ancient Babylon. He succeeded his father Nabopolassar. King Nabal Pelosar had defeated the Assyrians. Remember, they came in first and they took over. Um, they took the Israel, Northern Israel, when the kingdoms were divided. They came in and took over everything. And, with, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar defeats the Assyrians with the help of the Medes, which is another people group, and liberated Babylonia from Assyrian rule. So he was a strong king in his own right. And in this way, King Nebuchadnezzar provided for his son a stable base and had ample wealth from which to build, an opportunity for greatness which Nebuchadnezzar took full advantage of. They actually served together on the throne for two years, so there were two kings at one time. And Nabel gave Nebuchadnezzar military control of most of the Babylonian army. And with that, Nebuchadnezzar was able to defeat the Egyptians.' I'm just going to put that down. And so now, during this time that he was defeating the Egyptians and, and Nebuchadnezzars rising. What's going on is there's a high taxation on the people and unrest in the kingdom because of all this war. We've got to fund it, right? So they're taxing the people really high. Archaeologists' records reveal about this time some parts of the empire were revolting against the taxation. So there was unrest in the land. And then Nabal Pelosar dies, and we leave Nebuchadnezzar. And the kingdom is all Nebuchadnezzar's to run, with Babylon stable, and the Assyrians gone, it is believed that this is when he attacked Jerusalem and then took took Daniel and his friends captive. And ancient royal courts were filled with power plays. They were filled with assassination plots, especially in the beginning years of an untested ruler. Remember, it says in scripture, it was only the second year when we begin chapter two. And it's and it, but let 's also remember that the people are upset over the taxation on them, so it 's prime it 's unrest yeah. it 's unstable it 's prime for something bad to happen to this young king and i 'm sure being an absolute power with no checks and balances like we have in the government here, you know we've got the executive branch and the which is the president and the legislative branch, and then we have the um, the judiciary, thank you, which is the Supreme Court, keeps everybody from being an absolute power that 's what 's so great about the way our country works, um, but they, they, there's a lot resting on their shoulders. When a queen, like in England, in their history, you follow their history, when they're coronated, was that right, coron, or in the coronation, coronated? Um, what is said over them is that they are chosen, That God has picked them. They are the anointed one to carry the land and the rules and the people. And, I mean, it's this, as they're putting the crown and they're saying all this, you're just going, okay, wow. Can you imagine that one poor person? And when you think about poor Queen Elizabeth, she was, what, in her late 20s when she became queen? That's a lot of weight to put on your shoulders. And I don't know how old Nebuchadnezzar was, but he was young. And, um, and like I keep saying, he was untested. So the people treat them like they're, like they're mini-gods almost. Yeah. And so then Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Whether he remembers it, whether or not we have, a, we have established it was disturbing. And the king's <laughs> dreams carried significance for ancient people. King's dreams were seen as a communication from the gods about the state and its future. So they relied. When the king was going to talk about the dream that he had, people were listening. He was the mouthpiece for these gods that they worshipped. And then we know he can't either remember it or, it's, or he doesn't know how to recall it or he's, he's struggling with that. So he looks weak. He looks incompetent and he looks unstable. He's a new king. We've got taxation. People are upset. You know, I mean, there's a lot of unrest here. I keep wanting to say that. And nobody likes to look incompetent and unstable, especially a king who's in absolute power, right? It's like the president. It's like if the president came and gave the State of the Union, and instead of addressing the people he starts with, last night I had a dream. And we're all supposed to go, okay, you know. <laughs> no, you know. Um, all right, so scholars have unearthed ancient dream manuals used to help in the interpretation of such state dreams that past kings have had. Now, this is something they've unearthed, but this is not Nebuchadnezzar's. This is something from another kingdom. I just wanted to pull that up. In fact, in ancient Babylonian, in fact, there's an ancient Babylonian text that is now in the Berlin Museum that states, and this this doesn't state that. This is just an example that I have up here for you to see. But it states, um, if a man cannot recall the dream he saw It means his God is angry with him. So, if that's from Babylonia, and that's what they believed, and you've got a king who's having trouble with a disturbing dream, (coughs) is God angry with him? Uh, Maybe that's what was. Maybe that's why he demanded. Right, it could be. So the king, the dream was disturbing, and it needed interpreting. But he can't recall. He can't pull it all together to, to tell it, and or he doesn't trust his advisors. So the pressure's on. And in his wisdom, or maybe in his shrewdness, um, but it's probably driven by fear, Mm -hmm. right? Because he's going to protect himself. That may explain why he was so dogmatic about it being interpreted. So he calls on the various wise men of Babylon to interpret it. So they are the, we see the titles of magician, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers. Um, They were not what what we think of today. Okay. When these men were more like professors of prestigious learning institutes. So magicians. I'm going by my, um, my translation, which is the NIV. Magi- magicians. They're simply put, they were considered a type of scribe. They would work with books and perhaps religious literature. So they would, you know, open their books. Well, king, I think it's blah, 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 blah. And then, then you have the enchanters, they were more your wizards of sorts, and they would be the ones who would communicate with the dead and dealt with matters of death. Now I have the uh, New American Standard says they were conjurers. The New King James Version says, calls them the astrologers, and the Message Bible said soothsayer. Well, you get the idea, as what my point is. Then there were sorcerers, and the sorcerers comes from a word used for the act of cutting. Suggesting that they may have worked with pharmaceutical ingredients. So these were the guys who came up with the potions. And then you have the astrologers. Now, like I said, mine's the NIV version. The New American Standard calls them the Caladians. The New King James is the fortune tellers and the message Bible is diviners. When it mentions the Caladians, which is the original this is the Babylonian people, basically. Um Caladians are who uh, Abraham Was around, so that's why they. I think a lot of the texts translate it this way, Uh, but they they're not talking about the entire race. They're just talking about these particular people, and they were rulers in Babylon. They were assigned a prominent role among this interesting faculty that we have for the king. So, these men were considered to be the intellectual elite of their day of that ancient world, and even though they were superstitious. And involved the occult and, and made important decisions on astrological charts, they were considered the intellectual elite. These were the king 's go to guys, so naturally, they asked the king to recount the dream. King, recount your dream, and we 'll tell you we 'll we'll, we'll assist our dream manuals and so we can arrive with a suitable interpretation. Um, and so the king in his shrewdness was like, well, hold on, we're going to he turns the tables on him. Now, let me say right here in verse 4 of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. Okay? Just and then it picks back up to Hebrew in chapter 8. This is probably because this section deals with matters that are more important to the gentile nations around them who spoke Aramaic. And this was understood by many. Everybody was speaking Aramaic. That's what scholars are believing is happening. That's why the the text switched. Then from chapter eight on, the focus is more on the Jewish people, so the text reverts back to Hebrew. Now, that's the best I can pull from, but that's why. Um, So, going back to our story. But Nebuchadnezzar demands that the wise men not only interpret the dream, but tell him what he had forgotten. And if they did so, Nebuchadnezzar says that I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Well, these very powerfully conveyed words explain the atmosphere of fear and paranoia that's in the royal court. Daniel and his friends would have to learn to cope to survive. You talk about having to learn to flex. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. These were admired and respected men of Babylon, and they tried to convince the young king that this was an impossible task for them to fulfill. Just look at Daniel verses ten through eleven. There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. Can you? I can hear their exasperation. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Mm. You can just hear them trying to convince the king, You've, you lost your cookies here, you know, <laughs> without saying they've lost their cookies because they're going to lose their life if they see it. You know, I always say, I, I've written a couple of books, and in my books, that thing I sew in is that God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. And he's, he, but what's happening here is God's stacking the deck. I just love it. He is not going to let pagans consult their dream manuals for an interpretation based on man's wisdom. This dream is God speaking, and he wants his chosen, which is Daniel, to rise up and tell the king what God is saying. Because these were despised Jews. Let's not forget, Jews were despised even then. And they're in a Babylonian kingdom. And they're barely out of their teens. They're in their mid-teens. And so he makes the impossible possible. But that has to do also with Daniel's obedience to him. Daniel was obedient to, the king, uh, to God. And God is blessing him for that. So it's all for God's glory. And again, as we continue to go through the book of Daniel, we're going to see Daniel give God the glory. It's all about God's glory is why he wrote the book of Daniel, to give God glory. So the king orders the execution of all the wise men in Babylon, and that includes the wise men in training. Remember, he's an absolute monarch, and he can demand anything. And let's never forget that he's a barbaric, pagan king, and they can be very cruel because ancient kings are seen as cruel, and their ways are very barbaric throughout the Old Testament. So in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2, we see Daniel speaking with wisdom and tact. To Ariok, and Ariok was the commander of the king's guard. He was going to Daniel to execute him. But instead of reacting in anger and panic, panic, Daniel wisely asks to see the king and asks time so he can seek an interpretation. He addresses the king with wisdom and tact. And the King James Version says prudence and discretion. And I like that. Daniel and his friends were, all, were already well into their three years of the Babylonian schooling that they had to go through. And they must have already had the king's ear. So uh, they were because Daniel was able to request time with the king. We don't know if the king granted more time or not because scripture doesn't reveal that to us. But we did not see panic in Daniel like we had said Instead, Daniel and his friends together plead with the Lord for mercy that they might receive the interpretation of his dream and have their lives spared. And it wasn't just about them, please spare my life, please. Maybe they were friends with the king. Maybe they saw the anguish or maybe they saw the panic and the secrets in the corners of the uh, shadows of the royal uh, courts that this was, wow, this was not a friendly place. This is a really hostile place and there's an assassination plot of brewing or who knows, but maybe they had their heart on the king also. But also, uh, there was good news if the explanation and interpretation was satisfactory. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor, verse 6 tells us. So a great, still, a great deal was at stake here because of these. Here, a great deal was at stake because if these men were failures, then they were frauds. They lost Everything, reputation and all, including Daniel and his God, right? And, and, um, and, his, th- and his other three friends. So you, can you imagine the pressure? So there's a commentator named Gleason Archer who describes this moment in time, and I just want to read what he has to say. He said, The stage was now set to show the reality, wisdom, and power of the one true God, Yahweh, as over the inarticulate and impotent gods the magicians worshiped. It is the same general theme that dominates the remainder of the book and serves to remind the Hebrew nation that despite their own failure, collapse, and banishment into exile, the God of Israel remains as omnipotent as he was in the days of Moses, and that his conventional love remains as steadfast toward the seed of Abraham as it ever had been. So if anybody tells you it's the Jews' fault, the Jews killed Jesus, that God has taken you know, his eyes and his love off of the Jewish nation. It's, that's not true. It's not true. It's false theology. And it's going around. What, do you remember the name what they call it? Replacement. Replacement theology is what it's called. And it, it, it's, it's, it's gaining speed. So be aware of that. And this, it, it, it's, God loves his children. They are his chosen people. We are grafted in as Gentiles, but he loves his chosen people. And he has a promise for them. And in Jeremiah, he made a covenant with them. And God will not break his covenants. So just remember that. So, okay, verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel, in the very next verse, Daniel immediately praises the name of God. Why does verse 20 mention that? Why does it come right immediately after the, the you know, the vision's revealed? I would have thought, you know, and they danced and sang and they celebrated and then, and then they praised God. But immediately it's, and then he praises God. Well, <clears throat> let's talk about that for a moment. And to do that, I want to take us back to Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. And it's the story of the ten lepers. And only one came back, right? Only one came back to give Jesus praise. So I'm going to start at verse 15, because Jesus starts saying, or what it says in Luke. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back. And what, what was he doing? Praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said, rise and go. Your faith has made you well, which makes me wonder. I don't know. Maybe the leprosy came back on the others. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe God, everybody moved on. But there has to be a special blessing on the man who came back and took time to praise God. You know, Um When you read in the New Testament, anytime Jesus is giving thanks for food, he praises the name of God. Praise you, God, for this food. And we take time. It's being deliberate is my point. So Daniel's focus was not on getting the answer, but on who was doing the answering, right? And he wanted the sovereign God to get the glory. Are we in the habit of praising God for all that he does for us? I mean, even the little things? I think that's where I'm I'm pointing us. How long has it been since we just praised God for his sovereignty? Just, man, you are Lord. You are over all of this chaos. Praise be your name. This, is, this great God of ours still reveals secrets, even the deep and hidden meaning ones. We just have to go to him to find it. Scripture says that God dwells in the light. Psalm thirty four thirty-six nine says, For you for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. And he has the full knowledge of anything that happens in darkness, even hippopotamuses. <laughs> Psalm one hundred thirty nine twelve Even in the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for the darkness is as light to you. God controls it all, you guys. You guys, And what happens when it, when it will happen? What happens, when it will happen, and how long it will last? God's in control of it all. When we think about it, we are surrounded today by modern Babylon, mm-hmm. really. Sadly, society is becoming more secularized, and the God of the Bible is now often ridiculed. Others see Christians as fanatics for believing in him and his word. And like I brought up before early in our, our study, you know, the Egyptian Christians that are being beheaded. We've got the two pastors that we know of right now that are making the news. I'm sure there's plenty more, but that are in prisons in Iran and in Turkey. And meanwhile, the world around us looks to scholars. They look to university professors for solution, for, for their solutions, even talk show hosts or the news as the experts. And they are applauded while the Christian church is dismissed as irrelevant. Ah, oh, well, you're just a Christian. What do you know? Right? You know? Um, so there's a, I didn't put it up here. I had it and I took it out. But there's a .com out there called conservativemyths.com. And I couldn't find, a, I couldn't find an image that I was comfortable with. What it is, is it's political in nature, but it slams any conservative thinking. And conservative thinking is not good for you. It makes you closed-minded. No, no, no. Don't you think there's just one way to God. All roads lead to God, you know. And don't, don't be conservative in your thinking. Something's wrong with you. But don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out either. <laughs> you know, like I said, not all roads lead to God. Scripture's clear on that. And I can be accused of being closed-minded for even saying that, but it's a biblical perspective. Another example is hearing things that sound good and that may not be biblical either, right? We may hear that in order to love, we have to agree. But that's not true. Steve challenged me on this. God doesn't always agree with us, but yet he loves us. Right? We have to run everything we hear through a biblical perspective. And that's hard. That's when this road gets kind of narrow in today's world. But we have to be willing to stand there. So let's remember, it's not the experts and scholars that created the world or who redeemed us through Jesus Christ, who controls history, or who knows the future. It is God, the one who is revealed in the Bible, in the books of Daniel. And this is why we must place our ultimate faith and loyalty only in him and not in other things or experts. So in closing, I want us to remember, the wisdom of the world is neither sufficient nor satisfactory. God controls every part of his world, even those who sit on thrones and win elections, and I, wanna, I want us to remember that. We have a gubernatorial election around the corner, and in another couple of years, we have the election, uh, presidential election. It's gonna get ugly. But God's in control of it. Don't let the news rattle you. It's designed to do that. It's called shock TV. It's to keep you from walking out of the living room to go get the bag of potato chips that you were going to do or go out and, you know, outside and do what you were going to do. You're staying there. You're, you're, it's designed to go, oh, my gosh, and you keep watching as if you're watching a, a, a uh, car wreck in slow motion. That's, it, it's designed to shock you that way. It keeps ratings up. But seek God and pray for wisdom and healing for our land, but trust in his control. So, I I want in closing, uh uh-oh, where did it go? Okay, well, then you're going to look it up because I don't know where it is. All right, so I was going to read it. But I want everybody to write down and next week just have done this. Read Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is a praise to the Lord. And it is speaking his truth through our mouths. And it's more powerful than just reading. Don't just read it. Speak it. Speak it and praise our sovereign Lord in heaven. And when you do that, you're going to feel the Holy Spirit just move you. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. So with that said, Psalm 103. So with that said, let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you like Daniel did. We praise you like Daniel did and thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your wisdom and your power. And thank you for the knowledge of your word. We thank you for being the God in heaven, our guide, our companion, and our Savior. And in our uncertain times, Lord, when evil seems so strong and morale and and moral confusion is all around us, we acknowledge that you are in control of this world which is your world. You know what lies in the darkness of our times, Lord, and that you are still in the light that we follow and to carry us through it. You are in control, God. We trust you, and we praise your holy name. Amen. Mm. Thanks, guys. So we'll we'll do the rest of Chapter 2 next week. I hope you enjoyed this week's lesson. And I encourage you to fall in love with God's Word.